I don't get to do a whole lot of cars in a, in a year. I maybe do three total. And so I'm picky what comes in. I want to make sure that I get something and it's a good match for the customer and myself. So uh, I, I look at that car, I listen to their story, and I listen to what's important to them. That's the biggest thing. I really don't care what the condition is. It doesn't matter if it's in pieces or rusty. Uh, I look for um, the story of the car, and uh, you have to have vision to get through that. to cars initially was I had a cousin that raced you know on dirt and I was just a kid my sister drove me to that track every Sunday night for the races and I just really 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 enjoyed you know motorsports and watching that I grew up in southern Iowa so this was pretty laid back and not a lot of not a lot of rules or anything fancy but I took on from that when I was about 12 and my sister had a 54 Ford and that was the first car that I, that I tried to uh, restore. And I had no skills or experience. I had a pop rivet gun and tin, and you know, I didn't even have access to a welder of any kind. But uh, I wanted to take this car that she had driven you know, all through high school and went to Iowa State with it. I wanted to make that car new again. And it was so nice to see something transform into something that was wore out and had served its time, you know, and turn that thing back into something new again. And, and I think that was, that was really a, a motivator for me to see that transformation and also how happy it made the people. You know, my sister was watching this car, she called it Elizabeth, and she was watching Elizabeth go from a rusty, multicolored uh, vehicle, you know, moving towards something that at least there weren't big holes in. And... The thing that I think draws people to restoring cars is things from their childhood. I had an old uh, Chevy pickup that I drove all last summer, and when I was driving that, you pull in to get fuel. Everybody's like, I grew up on one of those, my granddad had one of those, my dad owned one of those. It was the first thing I learned to drive in. And I really think that people um, like to feel that uh, feeling again of connection to their past and their youth and it, it means something to them. It's a labor of love. It's more about the history of the car and, and they're bringing some parts of their past forward that feels really good to a lot of people. That's so cool. Oh, good morning, Hope. My name is Eli. I'm the discipleship minister here at the Ankeny campus. 
And uh, I recently got back. Um, I've been gone for a couple of weeks, was in South Africa um, as a part of a Hope's missions trip that we take uh, about every year to South Africa down there to partner with Blessman Ministries. And uh, it's a great experience. If you've never been on a, a missions trip before, really encourage it. We have a list on our website of the things that are happening next year, so check that out. Um, we do a lot of different outreaches there, but while I was there, I got a chance to, to preach and teach quite a bit, which is always a thrill when you're in a foreign country. And um, when, when I'm there preaching, it's through a translator, so the, that kind of throws the rhythm off a little bit. So if the rhythm today or the flow doesn't feel quite right to you, it's either because of that or just the punishing jet lag that I'm still experiencing that's throwing me off a little bit. I think our ignition students probably know what it's like to be sleep deprived. They're back. Where are they? Where are you guys ignition students? Or Yeah. So they were on their retreat all weekend. I'm glad that they're back uh, worshiping with us today. So that's exciting. But um, I love preaching when I'm over in, in Africa. Uh, it's a lot more loose, free. They, uh, there's not a whole lot of structure to it. Uh, you just kind of get up and talk about whatever God's calling you to talk about. And uh, church there can last like three hours. So just kind of sit back and relax and we'll see how this goes this morning. It'll be great. <laughs> Why are you laughing? And when I'm preaching there, um, this last time around, I, I felt like one of the things God was calling me to talk about with the church there was why we would go at all. Why, why, why do we feel like a group of Americans going halfway around the world uh, is, is a necessary thing? Is, um, you know, it, what, what's compelling us to do that type of work? And even conventional missions philosophy these days say things like, you know, the amount of money it takes to send 15 people overseas for two weeks... Wouldn't that be better served to write a check to the local pastors and leaders who are in that country because they, they do speak the language and they, they're neighbors with all these people and, and they could use those resources far more effectively than, than we could. And the other side of the same coin is here in the United States, there are plenty of things that we can stay here to address and situations and uh, issues in our own country that we can resolve. So what's the real benefit of, of doing a short-term missions trip like this? So as I'm preaching about this, uh, one of the verses that comes to mind for me is, is in 2 Corinthians uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 5 says this, it says, If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you, for Christ's love compels us. And some translations even say, if we are crazy, it is for God. And, and Paul, who's writing this letter to the church in Corinth, I think he probably got some of the same questions. Paul, you're not from Greece. Why would you come all the way over here from your country to do what you're doing? Uh, what, what's the benefit there? What's the need? And Paul said, it really isn't about need at all. It's not about having to do anything. We don't need to go on missions trips. We don't need to do a lot of those things. We do it because we are so full of the love of Jesus Christ that we want to experience that love together with worshipers from all over the world and to see what God's love is doing in places like South Africa and the other places we send teams. It's not about making a pragmatic decision to do missions. It's actually almost the opposite. Doing something that on the world's scale and, and at surface level seems like we're out of our mind and it's really because we are compelled by the love of Christ to reach out and to share that love with other people. And, and I think the more you follow Jesus in your life, the more you're going to find yourself making those types of decisions that other people would say, well, wh why would you do that? That's not practical. That's not a pragmatic decision at all. That seems kind of crazy. And you might do some things that out of the love you have for God and for other people, others might raise their eyebrows a little bit and say, that's just, that's not a decision I would have made. And that's kind of what I thought of as I was getting to know Mike Fugate and hearing his story, the, the person you heard on our testimony. Mike is actually new to our church, um, but he and his family are from Ankeny for a long time. And I actually just met him about six months ago. I was up here doing prayer after service, and he came up to receive prayer one morning and just got into a conversation. And after a bunch of talks and lunch and things like that, 
really kept hearing more of his story, and it's a story I wanted to share with you all because that's, that's what I saw in Mike's life. Mike didn't actually start his professional career building classic cars and restoring hot rods and things like that. That wasn't his job always. He actually had a very successful 20-year career with John Deere before any of this even started. Cars was always just a hobby for, for Mike, but uh, after 20 years with John Deere, and it was a, a successful career, he enjoyed what he was doing. It wasn't a bad thing at all. He really liked being in the uh, corporate uh, entity that was John Deere for him at the time and really loved the work that he was able to do with uh, farmers in central Iowa and proud of it. But at a certain point in his life, he made a decision to, to do something different, to make a change. And it was really something that he felt like God was calling him to do out of a certain circumstance in his life. So let's take a look. April 2nd, 2016 was another moment for me, a, a watershed moment that, that changed my life from that point on. I was, I was building cars, but not full time. And um, I, had, I had a really nice uh, 1970 Chevelle that uh, I had stored in Panora uh, over the winter. And uh, a friend of mine and I drove over there to pick this car up. It'd been there all winter and took it out, wiped it off, and I started home. Coming across on Highway 44, it was a really super windy day. There had been a lot of field work done and there was a lot of uh, grit, you know, that had blown up on the road. I was following my friend home, and all this stuff was kicking up on my car. And I thought, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass and get around my friend. But of course, I had to put an exclamation point on that pass. It just couldn't be a normal pass. And the car, the 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 car actually broke loose, and the rear end skidded around, and I lost control of the car. And and I remember when I was. Um, Realizing I was going to go off the road and down into a bank, there was a farm field that was down at the foot of this bank. And I, I remember thinking to myself, how am I going to get this beautiful car out of this muddy field? And, and what ended up happening was the transition from the bank to the field was very steep. And um, when the car went to make that transition, the nose of the car stuck. And when the front end stuck, the back end come up and it clipped through a telephone pole with the trunk, and then it went two and a half times end over end. I remember writing that through and just thinking, I wonder when this is gonna stop. When the car finally lost momentum and it landed, it landed on the roof and it, it put the roof flat with the seats. I really hadn't had a fear of dying while all this was happening, but uh, when everything came to a stop, I couldn't breathe. And it was pitch dark and I could smell lots of fuel. What had happened was the car, the roof of the car had pushed down so far, it had pushed my chin to my sternum and it collapsed my windpipe. <clears throat> and um, I was suffocating. And um, I remember, um, I wasn't making any deals with God, but I was just like, um, I survived this crash and uh, I can't believe that I'm gonna suffocate right here. I heard some voices coming and they were real. Um, I, I, heard this, I heard this lady's voice uh, say, is there anyone in the car? And uh, I couldn't speak. And uh, 
it's funny, you would think if you'd know if you're upside down or right side up, but you can't tell. And I, I don't remember, I don't remember turning it off. I don't remember unbuckling my belt, but I remember when that door came open, I was clawing um, my way out in the dirt. It really didn't add up to me. I took a picture of the car. I walked to the ambulance and one image that I'm never going to forget is one of these pictures showed this couple. They were in the background of the picture that I took of the car and they're holding hands. I don't know who those people are, um, but I'll assure you they saved my life. And, and I just, I thank God for that every day. I'm, I'm just like, each day is a gift. Uh, pretty well-known Christian author C.S. Lewis wrote a book a bunch of years ago called The Problem of Pain. And the book was his attempt kind of to answer the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And in this book, he has this famous quote that said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And we really don't like that. Um, that's not something we like to talk about very much. What what would God try to say to you through difficulty, through tragedy, through pain? That's not something that our culture really enjoys discussing. We're, we're kind of a pain-averse culture. Um, we we, we uh, avoid it, try to put it off, ignore it, um, medicate it, either legitimately or illegitimately. Um, we make a lot of decisions in our culture that um, are about our comfort and trying to find more comfort in our lives, and that's uh, kind of a motivating factor for a lot of us. It's especially clear when you come back from a place like South Africa where that's not the primary consideration that people in Africa are making. Um, what about my comfort? That's sort of a secondary consideration for them in a lot of different things. And, and that's our culture, though. We, we, we don't want to talk about pain. We want to avoid it. And we want to celebrate the things in our lives uh, that are going well, that are, that are good. And, and even in Scripture, when we're dealing with, with parts of the Bible, we can tend to gloss over some of the more um, rough-edged parts of, of Scripture because there's plenty of good stuff to talk about in the Bible. We're, we're finishing up our um, series uh, through the book of Luke. In the month of October, we've been looking at the book of Luke and even just last weekend, Pastor Scott got to preach about um, these great parables of Jesus that's all about uh, heaven celebrating when, when lost things are found. And, um, and it's so uplifting and, and inspiring. And the funny thing is, is uh, I was supposed to preach last weekend, but I got put on the South Africa trip. So Scott got to preach that, and I'm here preaching. This is kind of like the B-side. So the A-side of the record is all this great stuff, the, the greatest hits of Jesus' parables about lost things being found. You turn over the record, and here's all these really depressing parables these things that are, are challenging that Jesus is saying that are, we don't like to talk about again all that often. Things like sin, things like hard prayer life in Luke chapter 18 where we're going to be today. It's, it's, it's tough stuff that Jesus has to say. So listen back to the podcast from last week if you missed it and it'll pick you up after this sermon, I promise. Um, but Luke chapter 18, we've got a few different parables that Jesus is telling. Again, that they're, they're a little bit more prickly. And, and this one, the Pharisee and the tax collector, starting in verse 9, we heard it read, but, but Jesus imagines himself in a temple telling a story about a Pharisee, a religious leader, up in the front of the room, and, and he's praying loud enough so that everybody can hear him boast about his own righteousness, the things that he has done that, that he is proud of. You know, I, I, I tithe, I give a tenth of all of my income, and, and thank God that I fast twice a week when I pray, and uh, that I'm not like these other sinners, this tax collector, this despised person. Thank you, God, that I'm better than that. 
And then Jesus turns his, his eyes over to the tax collector and he, he sees a man who uh, can't even look up when he's praying and he's literally and figuratively beating himself up, crying out for mercy, Lord, have mercy on me for I am a sinner. And we don't like that either. In Christian culture, it's not especially popular to talk about sin and the reality of sin in our life. In fact, we, we even push back by, by talking more about the new identity that we have in Christ. You know, we have these stacks of worship songs that are all about how I'm no longer a slave to sin, I'm a child of God, and we sang one this morning, you know, I'm chosen, I'm not forsaken, I am who you say I am, and we sing all these great songs about having new life in Christ. We don't have to identify with our sin anymore because God has taken it away, and I'm not saying that that isn't true. That is true, that we, we, have evident, we have plenty of scriptural support for the reality of your new life in Christ. Things like 2 Corinthians, again, 5.17, it'll be on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. And it's true that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who you were before is no longer who you are now. The, the reality is that you are a completely new, uh, to stick with the car theme, you're a restored person, that God has made you new again, made you whole again. So what's going on here? Why, why is Jesus then making a hero of this person, this person who is so burdened by the weight of their sin that he can barely pray? And Jesus points to that one and says, this is the one who is justified before God, Jesus says, and not the, the religious, righteous, moral, ethic person. What's Jesus doing here? I, I don't believe that Jesus is using this parable as, as a, a sign to, that you should beat yourself up in your life, that that's the right way to live. I don't think that that's what Jesus is actually saying here, that you should just go around beating yourself up all of the time, uh, woe is me, a sinner. There, there's something deeper going on here. At, at Hope, we like to talk about the paradoxes of our faith. And uh, for those of you who uh, care about certain things like this, this weekend on the liturgical calendar, the church calendar is Reformation Sunday. Uh, so it's just the, the, the Sunday every year when we look back and appreciate all the things that God did through the Protestant Reformation about 500 years ago, where, where um, reformers, theologians, began taking fresh look at Scripture and saying, man, this is... All of our religious effort is not what God wants from us. It's His grace that saves us. It's His mercy that saves us. And through the Reformation, they began to appreciate that again and, and call people away from trying to, to live moral, righteous lives to earn their salvation. And instead, we need to respond more like Jesus says this tax collector does, relying on God's mercy for our salvation. Martin Luther, who was at the center of the Reformation, ended up uh, with, with a profound statement about our identity in Christ. And he, he said that we are simultaneously saints and sinners. That, that yes, you, your, your new life in Christ has, has, has called you a saint and you're a child of God and you have this new identity in Him, but that does not mean that sin is still not a real, real, real part of our, our existence and something we have to deal with and confront and, and yes, talk about from time to time. And what is the role that, that sin, that pain, that weakness has in our everyday life? And so Jesus is holding up these two characters, this, this Pharisee and the tax collector, and it happens a lot. You know, the, the, the role of the Pharisee in Jesus' teaching comes up frequently because these people, I think, were held up on a pedestal in their culture of that's, that's the way to live your life. That's the way that a good life looks. And Jesus actually even describes in verse 9 of Luke 18 who this parable is actually for. 
You know, he says that he told this parable to a group of people who were confident in their own righteousness and who looked down on other people. And so, so this parable actually isn't for people who, who think too little of themselves. He's actually telling this parable for people who think too much of themselves. That, that, that if you have lived your life in such a way that you think that your, your good works, your deeds, and the way that you live religiously, is that, if that's what you think saves you, that's who this parable is directed to. And that was the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They, they were absolutely certain what it meant to live a righteous life was to do everything as perfectly as possible. And that the culture around them would look and say, that's the standard. That's the goal. I should be like the Pharisee because they live a morally righteous life. One of the things that Mike said in, in his interview, uh, he was talking about the car accident itself, but I pulled it out because it felt pretty profound to me just for everyday life. He said, you'd think you'd know if you were upside down or right side up, but you can't tell. And I think sometimes in our life, when we're, when we're going through situations that are tumultuous, that are painful, right side up and upside down stop making sense. I wonder if you've ever felt that way before. And I think Jesus is looking at his culture and saying that what you guys think is right side up, this, this moral, ethical life that you, that you hold up as, as perfection, you've got it upside down. That's not what God has called you to as his people. That the standard of perfection is so much higher than that and unattainable. And so you thinking that you're going to earn your right standing with God through the way that you're living your life is completely upside down. And Jesus says, I want, to, I want to turn you back to a right way of approaching God and thinking about God. And so he introduces this tax collector as the other character. Now, this, this would have been really challenging in Jesus' day because the, the whole opposite end of the spectrum from a Pharisee who's living a righteous life is the tax collector, who in Jesus' day, they were Jewish citizens people of Israel who were employed by the Roman government to collect taxes on their behalf. They weren't collecting taxes to go right back into their own people. It was actually to go back to the Roman Empire so that they can continue empire building and being an occupied, occupying force in Israel at the time. So that's already a problem that these tax collectors are helping fund an ongoing occupation of their own land. But beyond that, the way that their system worked was Rome said, this is how much we're going to collect from the tax collector, but if you want to charge more than that, then you can just keep it. You charge whatever you want, and the extra is yours to, to keep and make money off of. And so here you have this class of people, they're despised for, for really good reasons. They're openly stealing from their own people to make themselves rich. Unrepentant thieves. And Jesus points to them and says that this tax collector has something to teach us because they're aware of the weight of their sin, because they're not too proud to admit that they might be going the wrong direction. And I almost wonder if, if this parable has some real life background to it, because Pharisees and tax collectors were really prevalent in Jesus's day. He debates a lot with Pharisees, but he also interacted quite a bit with tax collectors. And in fact, one of his own 12 disciples, Matthew, was a tax collector himself. So in Matthew chapter 9, we meet Matthew, and he wrote the book of Matthew itself. So um, he was really close to Jesus. And in, in verse 9, it says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And we, we look at this verse from time to time and think, wow, that's pretty great. Here's this person who just a stranger Jesus walks up to, and, and there's an instant career change following Jesus. And we should be like that. And not saying that that's how it didn't happen, but um, I almost like to imagine that, that perhaps Matthew might have been the tax collector that Jesus then turns into a parable. 
That what if it was the case that maybe the day before Jesus was in a temple praying and he sees this Pharisee up bragging about uh, how righteous he is and how great his life is, and maybe Matthew was the one standing at the back of the temple beating his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so Jesus says, okay, I will have mercy on you and invite you into a whole new way of life. And the story for Matthew continues in in chapter 9. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciple, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And in verse 13, Jesus uses the exact same language as he does in the parable of the tax collector and the sinner. I desire mercy and not a sacrifice. The the thing that Jesus looks to for for an indication of the condition of people's heart is not the, the, the outward things that they do that are sacrificial, their tithes and their fasting and the, all the religious stuff that, that people thought would, would, would equate a good life. Jesus says, I desire mercy. I desire people who are willing to get on their knees and to cry out for the thing that only God can give. And that that's what a good life looks like. Because that is such good news for all of us. Because even on our best day, you know, our church days, right, we, we, where we, are, we check a lot of the Christian boxes, go to church and maybe give some money and we'll spend time with family. And we do all the things that, that outwardly look like a really great life. Even on those days, we are still Isaiah 64 people. Isaiah 64 verse 6, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And this is God in the Old Testament. And it's a surprise to me that that the teachers of the religious law in Jesus' day didn't pick up on these themes that have always been consistent through Scripture. That the standard of perfection is God, around whom no sin can exist. And even on our best days, we're never going to match up to that. In fact, our best righteous acts are still filthy rags when compared to the glorious perfection of Jesus Christ, of God himself. We can't live up to that kind of perfection. And again, this isn't God beating us up because of our sin. This is actually good news for us. God saying that it's good news that you can't earn salvation. And he wants you to stop trying to earn the thing that only he can give you for free, his mercy. And so I think God gives us these indications, these moments in our life that might be difficult, that might be full of pain. And these are things that God uses to speak to us about how to stop trying to to live a righteous life and earn salvation and to instead come to Him for mercy, come to Him for grace, to, to embrace a new life that isn't something that we made for ourselves, but that was something that God made for us through Jesus Christ, to receive true healing True restoration. I was um, talking with Mike on a different occasion, not on the video, but uh, he, he was complaining about the, the TV shows that are about car restoration. You know, how it seems like they, can only, they do like one a week and they just churn them out really quick. And, and you heard him say he only does a few a year. He takes months and months, maybe a whole year on one car because for him, restoration is, is a total experience. Every single bolt and wire has to come out so that he can clean it and restore it and make it whole again, as opposed to those other shows that's basically like slapping a new coat of paint on a car and sending it out the door. Because that's the moral religious approach to faith. That if I, if I live right on the outside, if I look like I've got it all together on the outside, everyone else will, will see a shiny coat of paint and, and I won't face the kind of criticism or, or the need to, to look inward 
at all the rusty, broken down stuff that's underneath that shiny coat of paint. But Jesus says, I love you way too much. I love you far too much to have you go through life with broken stuff on the inside, with, with, with the filthy stuff on the inside. And, and what, what that causes in us are, are, are seasons of pain where Jesus is kind of taking us apart a little bit. Removing those things that are, are damaging to us. Cleaning things that, that are, are parts of our life we've just ignored for far too long. And that's only a work that he can do. That type of healing. And when we allow it to happen to ourselves, when we become like the tax collector who is willing to be honest about our need for mercy and grace from God, that's when real, real healing can happen. Let's take a look. What I like to tell people is, I don't, I don't want any sympathy, but I said what I do want is I want your attention. Life is so precious and so short, and it can be taken at any time. You know, I, I, I cracked C3 in that, and I had to wear a collar for like eight weeks. But other than that, I looked fine, but I didn't really realize how bad I was hurt. So the seatbelt saved me and kept me in the car, but it, ripped all the cartilage in my sternum and, and that takes a long time and, and to, to grow back and um, I, didn't, I didn't realize how long that journey was going to be. It, it's better all the time um, it, and I think the thing that's making it better is I'm, I'm dealing with less pain, less pain and less pain all the time. But um, they're, they're, it, it wasn't hard for me to get out and get behind the wheel again, but uh, I'll assure you, I modulate my right foot much more carefully than I did before. Uh, the last three years, my relationship with God, um, I have to use a car analogy. I, I, I love having both hands on the wheel and I'm kind of willing to take one off, but it's so hard for me to take both hands off and trust. I have to admit, when, I, when I'm able to do that, um, good things happen. And, and it, takes, it takes so much faith and courage to do that and, and not lean on your own skill and your own talent. I'm so fortunate to be able to do something that I'm loving and I think the reason is, is because of that, that trust. I can remember I was, you know, two years into this business, I was thinking, is it gonna go? Is it gonna feed itself? Is, is this possible? And, and I remember specifically praying that, um, God, this is in your hands. If it's, if it's meant to be, I'll follow that, and if my path leads me back to corporate America, then, then I'll follow that too. And, and I, it's nothing that's immediate, but I could just see things, you know, just keep picking up, and one thing led to another, and it was really nice how that faith, you know, really brought, brought this business from just a dream and a want to a reality. And one of the things that I've done that, that's a daily reminder um, before my accident, I never took any, any meds at all. And I can remember AM meds, but PM, PM meds are, are an issue for me. So I set an alarm, and it's a daily alarm, and every day that alarm goes off at six, and it says two things, meds and give thanks. And I do that every day without fail. 
It really is um, inspiring for me to, to hear stories like Mike, and, and he's one guy in our church, and I know that you all have stories of similar things where God has done something in your life that was hard, and, and you found on the other side of that uh, something more, something that God was calling you into that was, was greater. And, and for Mike, what's inspiring to me is instead of getting bitter and angry like I might have done, he actually listened in that moment of pain and, and, and asked God, what are you calling me to that's different from what was before? And, and what's my life supposed to look like after this? And for Mike, it's far more than just building cars and, and making a career change. This allowed him to shift his priorities to more time with his family and more time walking with Jesus and, and having better rest and all kinds of different things that Mike has found uh, because of the shift that he made and, and the decisions that he made that, again, on the surface level, don't look very pragmatic at all. But that's the type of person that I think God is, is looking for to use to reach other people in this life. That in your life, again, our mission statement as a church is to reach out to the world around us and share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. And the people that God is going to use to do that work aren't the ones who, again, on the surface, look like they have everything together. The strong people who, uh, I don't think our, our culture is actually all that different. We still put on a pedestal people who outwardly look successful, who look strong, who look smart, who look talented, and, and those are the people that we want to be like and admire. And Jesus is challenging our culture today that that's not the people he wants us to regard as an example for our life necessarily. And, and Jesus speaks to this in 1 Corinthians on the screen. Uh, God continues to reinforce this idea, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Because the weak people in the world, those like the tax collector who's willing to be weighed down by the burden of sin and to ask God for forgiveness and mercy, those weak people are the ones who when they find salvation are going to boast that God did it for them, that Jesus gave me my new life. I didn't make it for myself. A strong person will say, I, I did all this for myself. I made this happen for myself. I was a good enough person, a successful person, and on my own effort, I, I, I took steps forward in my life. And God instead uses weak people time and time again to do extraordinary things because it's always God's power working through their life. Again, Mike's illustration is perfect, letting God take control of your life and seeing where he drives your car and takes your journey. And where is God taking you right now? And have you, have you been willing to surrender your life to that? To let God do things in your life that everyone else will say, that's ridiculous. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that thing. You shouldn't love that type of person. You shouldn't be this way. And what's causing that? And you can tell them, it's because Jesus is directing my life. Uh, because I know that on my own effort, I can't do anything. That it's only the power of God and his mercy and his grace that's keeping me alive anyway. And I want to surrender my life to that. That's the person that, that Jesus says is justified before God. That's how the parable ends. It's the, this tax collector, this sinner, and not the, the righteous person went home justified before God. And I have to confess, I've never really understood what that meant. Um, this word justification is just, it's too big a word for me to understand. So in the Greek, we'll put it up on the screen, the Greek word that is used for justification, dedikaiomenos, is, is what the Greek word for justification is when Jesus uses it here. And, and when I don't understand things as pretty often, um, I try to do a little bit more investigation. Where else in the New Testament does this word get used? And like a lot of Greek words, there's a couple of slight different variations in the translation because it was a, a pretty dynamic language. And, and this word shows up a lot. And one in particular is, is Romans chapter 6. 
where again, one of those worship songs that we sing about having a new identity in Christ comes from, this is what it says in Romans 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Dedikaiomenos means set free in that particular instance. I think I understand that a little bit better. If you put that translation into Jesus' parable, Jesus said it's the one who is weighted down by sin, who is honest about their weakness before God. That's the person in asking for mercy and forgiveness. That's the person who goes home free that day. And it's not the righteous person who is continuing to boast about their own effort and their own uh, sacrifice that they have made. That person is actually still in captivity. They're the person who is still in slavery to sin. Whereas the person who is able to ask for forgiveness and mercy, that's the one who's set free. Set free to actually have that new kind of life. To to not not just look at sin and righteousness as the good things we do and the bad things we do, but the one who's able to say, in the midst of the, the pain and the weakness of my life, I have freedom in Christ because I know that He has redeemed me and restored me and saved me and set me free to live a whole new kind of life where I get to share that love and that freedom with other people around me. That's what God has done for Mike and and for a lot of you in this church. And I hope that from today, you'll be able to go home and and be set free, not trying to continue to live out of your own righteousness, but out of a, a real understanding of what you've been set free from, where you were before you met Jesus and, and where he's brought you afterward, completely restored and made new. So we're going to watch one more video from Mike's testimony, and then I'll ask the worship team to come back up and close our time with one last song. After that accident, what I did was um, I started, I started um, taking the car apart piece by piece, and what I was doing was I, I think I actually needed to just reconcile how I got through that. This car is just looked like it got stepped on. It was hard, but it was almost therapeutic to go through and just see. God's hands was so much into that accident. So the front end got pushed so far back, the battery uh, pushed clear back into the engine. And there is a terminal that's a policy battery terminal. If that hits anything that's steel, it will cause a fire instantly. And that battery was shoved completely back into the motor. And the only thing that it could hit that wasn't steel was the belt. And wouldn't you know, it's laying right on the belt. And the other thing is, when I did pull the fuel tank and stuff out of that car, the fuel tank's still in it and everything's fine, but the positive wire off the fuel pump was undone. For no reason, it was undone. And also, up on the firewall, there was a relay that controls the fuel system that was crushed. So one way or another, it wasn't gonna pump, you know, an amount of fuel while there still was fuel in the tank. I questioned a friend, I said, there's 12 bolts that hold the car and the frame together, and I, I don't understand how just like three bolts could hold this together while it was flipping violently. And I'll never forget what my friend said. He said, God can part the Red Sea. You don't think he can hold a body and a frame together you know, to, to keep you alive? And it, 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 was, it was really nice for me to start realizing, even though that was a bad accident, I started sawing through the wreckage of this car and 
I seen that there was a lot of things that were salvageable. The body and the frame and everything, it, it, was, it was done. It went in a dumpster, but I was able to save all the drivetrain, the brakes, the wheels, transmission, engine, and um, I don't know why, but I had, to, I had to build the sister car to that. So I made that car whole again, and uh, I brought a donor car right, right here in Des Moines, and it was another 70 Chevelle. It took, me, it took me about nine months to go through that car and, and put that all back together. And I remember the first time I drove it, I thought, because um, I was sitting in the same seats, I was, I, I was holding on to the same steering wheel, and I was just like, uh. I, I want to be involved. I don't want to sit in the pew. I want to be more involved. I, and I feel that calling, and not because I have any talent, it's, it's because I want to give back. And, and I, I remember telling God, as I said, if, you, you know, if you'll provide, you know, I will share. And I mean that everything from what little bit of skill I do have, even tithing, when I, when I earn, I want to share, and I do that willingly, and, and I, I do it with trust that it's, that it's going to, um, that it's going to come back and, the, and good things are going to happen, and um, that's been a, that's been a, a faith journey that, that didn't happen overnight. It's taken three years.